there was four mortars that hit total the wall and then three on the rooftop it took them about a, a minute and 20 seconds for all of them to hit well after that first one hit i raised my gun up to start shooting and that's when i realized that i'm injured because i bring my left arm up and about four inches three four inches above the wrist it's hanging off at about a 90 degree angle that was pretty, and, pretty accurate in the movie. Your 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 hand, your arm, from really from your fingers all the way what to your, to your forearm or so, mid forearm. Yeah, about about right here. Yeah, I mean, it was literally hanging just, down, man. It was. You it can kind of see where that scar man. is, where it blew it up. And it was hanging down, and you were like dangling it. I read in the yeah, book it was also. Yeah, I was. I'm actually swinging it, trying to make it grab my gun. I'm swinging it to shoot because I know I've got to keep shooting, otherwise they're going to come over the wall. I'm Charles Mizrahi, and this is The Charles Mizrahi Show. My guest today is U.S. Marine Mark Oz Geist. On September 11, 2012, terrorists attacked the U.S. State Department's special mission compound and a nearby CIA station called the Annex in Benghazi, Libya. Mark was part of a team of six American security operators who fought to repel the attackers and protect the American station there. Those men went beyond the call of duty, performing extraordinary acts of courage and heroism to avert tragedy on a much larger scale. Mark was severely injured, yet continued fighting. The team pushed back the attackers for 13 straight hours. Mark and his team were credited with helping to save the lives of more than 25 Americans. The team members wrote the book, 13 Hours, The Inside Account of What Really Happened in Benghazi, which became a bestseller and also was made into a major motion picture. I recently sat down with Mark to talk about the Battle of Benghazi and his two buddies that gave their lives on that fateful day. We also talked about the Shadow Warriors Project, a nonprofit organization that Mark and his wife Crystal started to help the heroic men and women who contracted to serve their country silently behind enemy lines. Mark Osgeist, thank you so much for being on the show, man. I'm greatly, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me, Charles. Uh, I've been looking forward to this ever since we were able to uh, connect. Same here. And uh, you weren't feeling well. I'm, I'm glad to see you're feeling much better now because I want to tell you, I I devoured this book. And this book, I tell you, folks, it reads it reads like fiction. Uh, sadly, it's true uh, for the tragic events that happened. But this book will keep you on the edge of your seat. This is Mark and his team wrote this book. 13 Hours, the inside account of what really happened in Benghazi, which we'll get into in a second. And it was also a major motion picture. And I just want to let you know, Mark, I had my whole family watch it a few weeks ago. We got all together, my four boys and my wife, and we watched it. And at one point, uh, when the third wave was coming, one of my sons said he couldn't breathe. It was just too, too intense. And I said, I'm speaking to the man who was there. And he goes, wow. I just want to tell you something. I am really proud to live in a country that produces men like you and your team. It really is a testament to what a great country we have. It, it is, you know, and um, a lot of people always ask me what the, you know, why the movie? And that's one of the things is it's not just about Benghazi. It's about our, it's about what happened there, but the book and the movie is also indicative of uh, what's going on every day in this world. I mean, we have, private security contractors, military, civilian employees that work for our government um, around the world. I mean, we have 273 roughly diplomatic facilities and this could happen anywhere. And 
the fact that we have people that are willing to put their lives on the line to serve this country, to make it a better place. I mean, that's really kind of, to me, that's the heart and soul of this movie is it's not just about us. It's about indicative of the people that love this country. Yeah, I'm unbelievable. And I'm willing to sac- give the ultimate sacrifice their life to protect literally total strangers only because they're Americans, not liberals, not leftists, not Democrats, not Republicans, not anything. The first thing was they're Americans in the compound. We have to protect them. That's, 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 that's what I got. It's just absolutely amazing. So um, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about your experience there. And then I want to talk about mm-hmm. what you've been doing since, because I think it's fascinating what you and your beautiful wife, Crystal, are doing in order to help uh, people that were in your place. Uh, reading this, there's a whole world out there that I had no idea about. So before we even begin uh, how you ended up in Benghazi, tell me what, a, what GRS is and how you got there. GRS is a group, is part of uh, an organization, it's part of the CIA. It's a government entity that is called Global Response uh, Staff. Our job is to protect Americans around the world, to be bodyguards, and that's it. I mean, our, you know, we're not there to get into a fight. Ideally, we never want to get into a fight because we're in a small group. Usually it's five or six guys. Um, when I, like, that night, September 11th, I was out in town by myself with a female case officer. So two of us together, there's no way we want to ever get into a gunfight. It's not about taking the fight to the enemy. It's about making sure that lives, that people live and lives come home. Okay. So this is not John Wayne. This is uh, uh, basically when you do your job and no one hears about it, that's a happy day. And you're, the, the job yes. that you guys do is being done every single day in 200 plus uh, uh, outposts throughout the world and no one ever hears about it until there's a problem. Yeah, our, our, our kind of our sister group, I guess you could say is, uh, they call it DSS, it's Department of Security Services for the State Department. And they do the same thing. They work for the State Department doing the exact same thing. Okay, so now I want to join GRS, but there's no way they're going to have me. Because I was not in the military, and I wasn't one of your top guys like you. You're, you're a former Marine. You're not a former Marine. You're a Marine for life. You're, you have Marines. You had uh, Navy SEALs, two Navy SEALs. Uh, um, uh, did you have an Army Ranger in the group? Yeah, we had one Army Ranger, three Marines, one Army Ranger, and two Navy SEALs. Two Navy SEALs. So that's it. Okay. So now you guys signed up for this GRS, and the pay is darn good per day. To protect, so you you folks are basically the security force for the CIA. Well, let's put it this way: you're the bodyguards for the CIA when they're out in places that are in God's underbelly, the worst places in the world. Yeah, yep, that's exactly it. So you're not a mercenary, you're not a gun for hire. You are basically paid by the United States government in order to protect our uh, CIA operatives. In this case, with GRS, wherever they may be in the world. Yes. Yes, okay. sir. That's, it. That's the best definition I've heard. Okay, great. Now, my first question is, after seeing battle, and you were in Marines for what, 12 years or so? Uh, yeah, I served in the Marine Corps for 12 years. I was in law enforcement for six. Um, most of that was uh, investigating crimes against children, crimes against family. Um, and then I had my own business for about three years doing bounty hunting and private investigations until the war kicked off. And then started contracting in 2004, um, actually started out protecting uh, um, 
State Department personnel. And then I was training Iraqi SWAT teams and their uh, protective personnel for the Iraqis. And then for about a year and a half, I was a consultant, a security consultant uh, for Dr. Ayad Alawi, who was one of the former prime ministers of Iraq. It was a U.S. contract, Department of Defense contract, where our job was to protect him and make sure his security force was up to par. And then I got picked up by GRS for uh, the last few years. So after you, after you serve in the military and you, uh, um, you have a family, most of, you, most of the team I read uh, have families, uh, you go back into the fight again. What motivates you? What drives you after 12 years, for example, with you and, and all, the, all, the, all the stuff you've seen to go back and put your life at risk in pretty bad places of the world? You know, I think it's, uh, it's, for me, it's just something that the way I was raised, I mean, my, I had a grandfather that served in World War II. Um, he was a tank commander, was in North Africa, fought in the battle across Europe, uh, stayed in Germany. Um, I had three uncles that served in the military, two in the Navy, one in the Marine Corps during Vietnam. And that, that idea of sense of, that sense of service, that selfless service to something and being a part of something bigger than yourself is uh, one, I think it's something that has been, was it's genetics, I guess, maybe, but it's also just the way it's, it's the love of the country and love of, uh, of what we stand for here in America. So to join, to be part of this team, uh, you, not only do you have to have a military background, I'm assuming, but you also have to be like the best of the best. Yeah, they, you know, they look at each individual and uh, at every position for the different uh, skill sets that you might bring. Um, you know, my, where my background in the Marine Corps comes is one, I was with um, what we call state platoon, which is surveillance and target acquisition platoons. Um, I was a counterterrorism, anti-terrorism instructor. And then I was also a linguist. Uh, I was an interrogator translator. I spoke, I speak Persian Farsi as a second language. Um, so those there, you know, that was a special skill set that I had. The other guys each had their own, you know, the, the Navy SEALs being Navy SEALs, they bring everything that they do. Same with the Army Rangers and, you know, and the other Marines. Um, and, and that's one thing about GRS that a lot of people maybe not don't understand is that we weren't a team that came there. Um, each of us had never, we'd worked in, both of us or all of us had worked in the same locations at various times but never as a group or as a team. Um, a couple of the guys had worked together, but like myself, um, I knew who Tig was and I knew who DB and Tonto were, but I had never worked in the same, I worked in the same place, but never at the same time with them. Okay. So now you sign up for GRS. GRS gets the best of the <clears> best to protect, to protect the CIA operatives dealing in Benghazi. Our embassy is in Tripoli. Benghazi is set up as a CIA outpost that no one's supposed to know about. Is that right? Well, there was two places. You had the consulate, or uh, they also called it the special mission facility, which was the State Department facility, which was about eight acres. Um, that's where the ambassador would come when he would, if he came down from uh, Tripoli, that's where he would stay. And he had a security detail there that protected him when he was in country or in Benghazi. And then uh, we were about a mile away as the crow flies, um, a smaller compound about probably the size of a football field at, at the most. And uh, 
there was with all the support personnel, I mean, I think roughly 20 some, probably 18, 20 people there. Got it. So you get the assignment from GRS, you sign up, and how long is it? A 60 day, 90 day uh, 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 contract? How long is that? Well, it's it, between 60 and 90 days. Um, you know, your contract is set for the year, but each place you go to is an individual contract. So if that makes any sense, I mean, yes. and you're hired basically full time in a sense, but you only get paid when you're in the country that uh, you're designated to go to. Got it. So your assignment now is to go to Benghazi. You know Benghazi. At this is the t- this is the time of the Arab supposed spring. Gaddafi was just overthrown. The country's still with a lot of warlords, really divided. Uh, uh, military uh, uh, arsenals are open where kids in the street have hand grenades. So. You're yep. going into a pretty crappy area in the world. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's uh Yeah, how, how did your wife react to this? How did Crystal react to this? Um, she didn't really understand what Benghazi was like, and I never really shared it with her. I mean, most of the pictures I shared with her and showed her where I was going was uh pictures that were before the overthrow. Um, you know, and before the overthrow of Gaddafi. I mean, there were some beautiful beaches. They had an Olympic training center down there, um, things like that, you know, and, uh, and that's mostly what I told her. And, uh, um, you know, most of what she knew that I did, I mean, she kind of knew what I did, but she also, I always did more paperwork than I did anything for her. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So you go to Benghazi and you meet up with your crew there. There was, there were uh, seven, right? Is that right? Six of us. Six of you. Six of you. Okay. So now you get there and your job there is to protect CIA operatives. And you're there for 60, how long was that period? 60 days or 90 days? Um, I was going to be there for about 60 days. 60 days. Okay. When did you land there? When did you get there? Um, About 45 days before September 11th. It was uh, um, first part of August, right around the 1st of August, 30th of uh, July, somewhere in that vicinity. Gotcha. So you have only two more weeks. Cash out. So far, nothing's happened. You've done your job well. And when you talk about 9-11, it wasn't the 9-11 we experienced here in, uh, in 9-11-01. Uh, it, it was a different 9-11. So yes. that was 9-11, 2011, uh, 2011, right? 12. 12. 2012. 2012. Right, 2012. So you, and it's called, it's called 13 Hours, the book, because 13 Hours, you held off how many... How many, how many marauding terrorist, crazy people trying to kill you guys? Um, you know, the exact numbers, I'm not sure. I'd, I've heard that uh, between the killed and injured, there was somewhere between, and I can't validate this, so I, I, it is hearsay that was told to me, but somewhere between 150 and 300 individuals that, uh, that were either killed or injured. Okay. That's killed or injured. That doesn't talk about the ones who were there. So if we just... Correct. You know, a nice number. Let's add another 200 got away. You're talking about close yeah, to 500 people by you folks. That was it. Yes, sir. That was between it. Uh, the attacks that happened at the consulate when it got overran and between the three follow-on attacks that happened at the annex, um, roughly somewhere in that vicinity would probably be a good number. Okay. So it's a regular day. Uh, 9-11, you're on some type of alert, because I, I did read that there was some alert because of 9-11. You weren't really sure of what was happening, and your team is in the annex? 
and you're out protecting a CIA operative. In the movie, it depicts her as a nice lady who's sitting there for lunch, and they want to have lunch, and you're dragging him away. But I don't know if how true that is, but uh, you're out in the city with her and with the other CIA. I think it was one operative or two operatives you were with. It was a husband and wife? There was or? just myself and her. We were uh, yeah. we were out. I, uh, the best way I explain it is we actually, and we were meeting a local Libyan couple, um, and it happened to also be their daughter's birthday. So it was kind of, we were having a dinner date is what I call it. Okay, dinner date. You get a call. What happens there? The call is what and who calls you? Um, I got a call over my cell phone, uh, from Tyrone Woods or Roan. And, uh, he's just got on the phone and because the cell phones are not encrypted, it's not a secure form of communication. He wasn't going to give me much information. He just said, Hey, Oz, you need to get back to the annex and stay away from the consulate. And the fact that he did that in the middle of a meeting, um, really that already put me on alert because it's not something that would normally happen unless there was something that was grave that needed to uh, be addressed. And so I gathered up the female case officer. I got her in our car and that's in, and in our car, I did have secure communications and that's when I was able to turn on the radio and hear really what was going on over at the uh, consulate at that time. And we headed out the, uh, the compound gate where we were at, there was a compound headed out and uh, you know, to stay, Really, if we could have drove straight from where we were at to the annex, um, it would have probably taken maybe five minutes, but we would have had to go near the uh, consulate. So instead of going direct, we kind of headed west um, down the ocean, down the beach, basically along the shoreline and headed out as far as we could and cut back through and uh, kind of come back through some of the desert to get back in um, on the backside. It took us probably 30 to 40 minutes to get back. And when Roan called you, you know, you know, this guy's a Navy SEAL. This guy is top shelf, the best of the best. When he calls you and say, get your butt back here, there's something serious going on there. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it had to be, had to be something severe for us to be called out of what we were doing. How'd you feel as soon as you got there? When he called you on the cell phone, did your stomach drop? You say, holy smokes, they're going to, something bad's happening here? Um, you know, the first thing that happens in my mind is, uh, you know, I just got to start, I call it, uh, I just got to prioritize tasks as they're coming. I mean, first thing is get her into the car, get ready, get headed out, making sure, because, you know, typically when something like that happens, especially where there's an attack on a U.S. facility or even on any, on any other diplomatic facility, if there was others in the area, um, the militias, because Benghazi at the time had about 10 or 15 militias that operated in and around Benghazi. And those militias, some of them are, somewhat friendly and some of them were like Ansar al-Sharia who attacked us and uh, they start setting up checkpoints, impromptu checkpoints just to kind of, because they know people are out moving and they want to see who they are and they know that they can take advantage of that. So my thing was, okay, I've got to plan a route in my head immediately of how I'm going to get from where we're at back to the annex without getting caught up by one of these militias. So your brain immediately goes into military mode. I have an objective here. I got a mission. <clears throat> Just get right through it. The objective is get back to the annex. Yeah, because that's the only place. I mean, out there on my own, I know that we're uh, we're really it's really unsafe for us. Um, you know, and and I had to contend with you know the female case officer. She was great at her job, but that fear set in in her. You know that uh, fight or flight syndrome and. You know, she's trying to tell me, okay, hey, we need to do this. We need to do that. 
And, you know, I just, I, in a very blunt way, I told her, I said, Hey, I don't need your mouth. I need your eyes. I need you to shut up and keep your eyes on what's going on out there because I'm focusing on driving. I need you to focus on potential other threats that you might see. And, uh, it kind of calmed her down and she jumped right into what she had to do and she knew it. You know, it was just that little bit of adrenaline that kicks in when you're listening to, because over the radio, we're hearing the explosions and the gunfire. And one of the State Department, the State Department team leader came over the radio and said, if you don't get here now, we're going to all die. Now there was, a, and you know, there obviously there was a few expletives in there as well. And you could hear that fear and panic in his voice which kind of trans kind of transferred over to her a little bit until, you know, you, you you got her settled down until I was able to get her settled down and focus on what we needed to do. Gotcha. You drive back to the annex, you get to the annex, then what? Well, when I got in, I had to take over security there because the rest of the team, Tig and Tonto, Jack, DB and Roan had, after having been told to not go, you know, or stand down, um, the third time they just left. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, a found, uh-huh. hang on a second, Mike. So these guys are already told that you're out in the field. They're already told that the that the compound is being attacked. Yes. So they're told, okay, their first reaction is, let me get in, let me drive over there. It's less than a mile, so maybe seven, ten minutes away, or even less. Let me drive over that we got to defend. They're told by Bob, who was yep. a CIA, uh, what is his position? He was the base chief. He was the base chief, chief of base. Chief of base, this. He tells them, st- stand down. And these guys are like fucking Broncos, knowing that lives will be lost every moment of the time, every, every second that they're delayed. So my first yep. question to you is, why the heck did he tell them to stand down and wait? Well, you know, and, and being the, I think the first time, and I kind of understand his reasoning for it is he's trying to, I mean, the last thing he wants is our base, the, the CIA base to be identified or be, be known or giving up our security because once we send our guys over there, if the attack came to the annex, I mean, and everybody at the annex is trained in weapons so they should be able to defend themselves to some degree, especially behind, you know, a protected barriers they could hold off. But I understand his, I can kind of understand his reasoning. I mean, he's trying to get, you know, some of the other militias that are somewhat friendly that we had a relationship with to find out really what's going on over there. Okay. So, he, um, so he's trying to assess the situation and we'll give the benefit of the doubt here. And uh-huh. he's calling off your guys and your team is like, I get, we got to go. We got to go. So twice they ask third time. They said, heck with this. We got to get in there. And, and, and the calls kept coming in to them, telling them how desperate the situation was. Is that, is that right? Yeah. They, they could hear everything. I mean, um, if they're up on the rooftops of our buildings, they could see the gunfire and the tracer fire going across the sky. You can hear the explosions. And, and really what kind of set them out the gate was uh, when they heard the same thing I did, when they heard, if you don't get here now, we're going to all die. And at that point, they knew that they had to go. Um, you know, and, and falling back to Bob, as much as I give him the benefit of the doubt, 
the other thing, the problem I had and the other guys I had with him is he didn't understand what our capabilities were. He's worried about us going over and just getting into a gunfight. And that's the last, like I said, that's the last thing we want to do. When we get over there, we want to assess the situation and determine what the best course of action is. Because the last thing we want to do is get into a gunfight with 40 armed individuals, because that's what we knew at that time was there was at least 40 armed individuals that had already taken over the consulate. And you don't know if there's any dead at this point. You have no idea what's going on other than the consulate is being overrun. Yeah, that it's been overrun. And at this point, no one knew where the ambassador was. Um, Was he kidnapped? Was he killed? Who knows? Okay, so you're flying blind now. So you get back there. You get back there. Two times they're told to stand down. Third time, what happens? The guys, once they hear that, you know, if you don't get here now, we're all going to die. They just head out the gate. They quit asking for permission and just left. And they headed over to, uh, to the consulate and they got within about 300 yards. Um, there's a road that ran a dirt road that ran in front of the consulate and they come up to the corner there. And there was, uh, when they pulled up, there was a guy sitting in a Hilux pickup truck. We call it a technical. It's uh, got a, a Russian 50 cal. It's a 12.7 millimeter, uh, Dishka, um, heavy machine gun sitting in the back. And this guy is with a group called Feb 17. And they were kind of one of the friendly militias. He's sitting there shooting down towards the, towards the consulate. And they could see the tracer fire coming from the consulate. And they glanced around the corner. Tig had had said, you know, he he glanced around the corner. He saw a guy down there shooting back. And so Tig just uh, stepped around the corner and he launched um, three 40 millimeter grenades out of his uh, grenade launcher and landed on that, on the guys that were down there shooting and pretty much blew them up and just separate kind of dispersed anybody that was there if they didn't get killed or injured. So how did you, so then you, you go into the compound, you go into the, uh, you're, you, 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 uh, you're in, where were you? Now I'm over at the, I'm, I'm taking over security at the annex. Now I'm over making sure that if anything happens over there, I'm there to protect the, uh, uh, the number of people that were at the annex still. So that's only you. You're the only guy protecting the annex. One guy. Yes. So yes. one guy protecting. Uh, 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 if you're overrun, I don't know. One guy. I don't know how much one guy can do. Well, one guy can do a lot, but you're one guy protecting. How many people were there? Um. Well, there's probably eighteen to twenty. There was a total of twenty six. But if you counted us, there were six of us, so around twenty people. The twenty people, but you, but five of you guys already left. So it's only right. you back the six, there. Out of twenty six, those six left or five left. So there was with me there. There was uh, twenty one, basically, roughly twenty one people. Twenty one guys um, with a perimeter that really was pretty penetrable, right? It wasn't high. Uh, there wasn't that much defense around it. I think you had uh, Libyan uh, friendlies protecting. Was that it, or this? We had three uh, Libyan local Libyans that um, we had hired to help protect. Uh, you know, kind of run the gate. And if anybody came up, basically their thing was more eyes than anything. But um, so they were up on some elevated fighting positions. I was up on top of the buildings and, uh, you know, and and, um, when up on top of the buildings, we had already preset a lot of different places where we had ammo. Uh, Every corner of the building had ammo so I could move from position to position. If it came down to it, I mean, I'm going to shoot and move and shoot and move. And 
from the top of what the main building, I could probably cover the majority of our perimeter um, to some degree. And my thing was making sure everybody was in that building and not walking around. Were they, um, were they in the building? Yeah, they were, they were in there. I, you know, they're trying to get things done. So I made sure I had to put a guy, one of the, one of the, one of the other individuals that was there, I put on the front door and said, you know, don't let anybody go out unless they're coming out in ones or twos, but then they got to go out and come right back. Cause I want to know basically accountability. Cause my fear was if somebody's climbing over the wall, cause they could climb up over the wall and get in, in some of the darker corners. And if I see somebody running around with a gun, they're going to probably get shot. So every our, our people need to stay in one location. How high were these walls? Uh, they're probably about 10 feet. It wasn't hard to scale. Not hard to scale at all. No, uh, no, no they could have got over them fairly easy. No barbed wire, <laughs> no no electronic means to deter anyone because you don't want to make it look like a compound. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 10 foot to high uh, perimeter. One guy, ammunition in four corners. You're covering 70 to 80% of the area. Great. Back at the annex, what's happening there? Um, back over at the consulate after Tig. Okay. Uh, what, what do we call that? Is that the consulate? I keep confusing them. Yeah, yep. consulate. The, the consulate. annex is where we're at. Okay, the annex consulate is where what was the, the ambassador was at. What was the compound that was that, that was um, used? I saw the word compound. The compound. Yeah, was, the compound. It was compound. Is just the It's it's a about eight acres. It was surrounded by the same size of walls, about ten foot, twelve foot walls. Um, had an entrance on the. Uh, north side into the um, ambassador's compound or the consulate had another okay. in, um, entrance into the, on the, uh, the uh, south end of it. Okay. So the consulate and the compound are one and the same. Yes, sir. Got it. Okay. So let's use, let's use just so my, my mind can get this. Let's talk about the consulate. That's where the ambassador was and you're not there. You're back in the attics. Yes, sir. Okay. Now you got your five buddies. They approach, they get in, throws three grenades, destroys those people. Now he gets in to the consulate. Two of the guys went, um, Tonto and DB got to some higher ground so they could provide cover fire and observation while they're, while three guys moved through the front gate and there was Roan, Jack and Tig that had moved down uh, what we called consulate road, turned to come into the front of the, into the, through the front gate. And what they run into is basically 40 armed individuals that are running around in a very disorganized manner. The uh, the guard shack that was right there was fully engulfed in flames, which was to their right. And directly in front of them, about 25 yards, was the ambassador's residence or his house that was inside the consulate that was fully engulfed in flames. Wow. So they, and, get, uh, so they got there and, and it's a total it's a total storm. There's fire there. The you don't know if the you don't know if the ambassador's in there. You don't know how many people are killed or what this situation is. Zero intel on that. Correct. Okay, so they see the consulates, uh, the the, uh, the ambassador's residence completely engulfed. What are they doing? Well, first off, they got to take care of the bad guys that are running around. And, you know, it's hard to identify who, the good and bad because there's, I mean, they're not wearing uniforms. Um, basically, you're going to shoot the guys that are pointing a gun at you. Wait, wait let, me, and, let me interrupt you a second. Let me say that. There was no previous intel. You had smart people there. You You knew the lay of the land. Yes. You, no one had any intel that on, especially 9-11, uh, in a pretty bad spot, in a Muslim country, 
interspersed with civilians and warlords, that nothing was going to happen. There was no high alert. There was there was no advance warning of any sort. Well, you know, it's it's September 11th. No matter what year it is, in every diplomatic facility around the world, is a higher alert status. Uh, actionable intel that something was going to happen to our facility, but or to the consulate. But you have to be prepared for anything. And 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 the guys that were protecting the ambassador there, and I, I, I will say this, is they were great guys. I mean, they had the heart to do their job, but they didn't have the experience. Right, right, right. Uh, Sean Smith, one of them, in, information officer who unfortunately was killed, uh, did his, but I think it's something to the effect of these guys, you put them together and you had their experience didn't equal up to one of you guys. No, I mean, you know, I kind of figured it up afterwards of how much military and combat experience our team of six had, and it was over a hundred combined. We had over a hundred years of experience. Yeah, but it's not their team of five of had maybe, maybe a quarter of that at best. But your hundred years of experience was at at the top level. Yes. So it's a lot different, you know. Saying you know, me and um, you know, Felder are tennis players. We're you know, we're, we're not in the same league. Right. We're, you know, not diminishing anything what they're doing, but just, you know, not to downplay what you guys, you guys are, you guys are, 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 are warriors. It's like playing pro ball versus triple A. Yeah, hundred, not even triple A, I'd say high school ball. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. It, you know uh, you're too modest. So now you, they get there, they're trying to assess the situation. All hell's breaking loose. The ambassador's uh, residence is on fire. They're trying to secure, and you have people walking all around this consulate. And you don't know the good guys from the bad guys at this point. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And they keep so, coming. What's the next step? Well, first off is you got to take out the threat. And the guys that were bad, the guys that had guns that posed a threat or that they determined were a threat is they started taking them out. And, you know, and, and a lot of people ask me, how can three guys take out 40 armed individuals? And, and it's through, basically, it's element of surprise, violence of action. When you come through and whether you're coming into a house, you're going into a compound or to the consulate like that. I mean, you start, you know, you start shooting the bad guys and, you know, I kind of have a rule and um, these, you know, most of the guys probably similar to it, but anything we're shooting once is we're shooting at least twice because ammo's cheap and life's not. And, you know, when, when the bad guys start seeing their friends, get shot in the face. Um, they decide they don't like getting shot in the face. It doesn't do good for longevity. So they start separating and disappearing. They don't have the stomach to stay in the fight. Right. These aren't warriors. These are, these are just local militia militia. These are people with who were able to buy guns cheaply. Yep. Right. That's okay. what they are. Gotcha. And uh, so now they're there. When do you get the call? <clears throat> we pushed them off. They left. The guys did. Our team did. And they, the State Department guys, come out of uh, where they were kind of um, isolated. How were they? Let me they all up started searching for the uh, ambassador. How, how, how many State Department guys are there? Five, five, five security guys. So there are five so security a, guys that 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 is trying to hold off this onslaught before you folks arrive. Correct. Okay. Well, and really, what happened with them is, and again, I don't want to say anything disparaging towards them, but they didn't fire a shot the whole night. Um, and a lot of that came to their training. They were, and I don't blame it as much on them as on their training that state department provided them as, uh, 
you know, they didn't, they don't put the right people in the right places. Um, you know, Scott was one of them and Scott, uh, his job before coming to Benghazi was a passport fraud investigator for the state department. He went through their, I think it was a six or eight week course of high threat protection course. And he was able to go there, but, and a lot of that was because the way the state department set up these full-time employees had to have a hardship tour. They had to go to someplace that was like that so they could get promoted. So if you're doing a great job back here in the States and this is where politics comes into it, you know, Scott was a great guy. He was a great, he did great at his job he was doing before. And because of that, they said, hey, we want to promote you, but you got to get a hardship tour. So he chose to go to Benghazi. They allowed him to. And, and if you got one guy like that on your team and everybody else is, you know, top notch, then you can care, you know, you can kind of get him up to speed. But when you don't have the right training and the right experience, um, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, you're gambling, you're, you're rolling the dice, hoping that, uh, you know, that, uh, snake eyes doesn't come up, but, and 90% of the time snake eyes don't come up, but that one time that it does, you don't have the right people there. Right. Right. Okay. So now they're, they're doing their best to secure the area, trying to take out the 40, uh, um, um, I don't even call them militia, terrorist, whatever, whatever you, at the enemy. Yep, terrorists is the best way to put them. Good. Terrorists coming in there. And this was unprovoked. You guys did nothing. Well, basically they just came in and this was a time when America was trying to help Libyans. Uh, get back yep. on their feet after Gaddafi. So we were there in a very, um, well, no one could say anything. It was really a, a peaceful right. situation. You had Obama's president. Uh, uh, this wasn't anything of territorial conquest. It was basically to help a country get back on its feet after a dictatorship. And they come yep. over the walls and start trying to destroy you. Yep. Okay. Yeah, well, they... Where are you now? You're still back. You're still back. in the, I, uh, I was over to the uh, annex the whole time. I mean, the, the five guys... When the State Department guys come out along with them, they search for the ambassador. Tig and uh, Roan went in and out of the building looking for the ambassador. I mean, and now they didn't have gas mess or anything. They were just holding their breath as long as they could. And they would try to get in there, search for the ambassador. And over the next uh, couple hours, they probably searched inside that building at least 10 or 15 times. And in so the middle of it. So wait, wait a second. These guys are going mm -hmm. in, holding their breath. Noxious fumes. The house is must be pitch black. Uh, uh, all, yep. all that all the toxicity. They can't breathe. They're holding. They're going in and searching in pitch black without gasping as far as they can hold their breath, and then they keep doing this back and forth ten times. And unfortunately, they never find. Yeah. The, they never yep. find the. They want to find the ambassador. They don't find the ambassador. Okay. Uh, no. At one point. Uh, at one point, they got separated and. Tig came out and was catching his breath and he heard Roan yelling that he was lost and Tig, you know, immediately just went right back in and went towards Roan's voice and finally found him and, uh, and, and helped him lead, led him out later that night, or I wouldn't say later that night, early in the morning, the following morning before uh, our final attack at the annex, Roan had told me how Tig had saved his life. Had Tig not come back in and got him, he wouldn't have made it out of that smoke-filled building. Wow. So, so the rescue would have been another casualty. Yep. That was it. So, okay. So they're coming back and forth. You have men on rooftops trying to secure the, the, uh, the consulate. Is that right? 
Yep. Okay. Yeah. They, uh, and there was a counter assault, which means the bad guys, after having got kicked off, decided they were going to come back and try to, they realized that maybe there wasn't as many people there as they thought or whatever. And we're going to try to take it back over. And, uh, they started shooting RPGs back again and AK 47s and everything. And the guys repelled that, uh, attack. And at that point we had to make the decision or the team had to make the decision over there that, uh, do they stay there and try to hold an undefensible position or do they fall back to the annex, reassess the situation and, uh, and see what to do next. Because at this point, we're getting on to probably around 12 o'clock at night. So they've been there from 9.40, 9.30, 9.40 till about midnight. And um, they had to determine what to do next. Couldn't find the ambassador. We don't want to stay there. And we also got intel that there was another 100 guys going to be coming back at the consulate again. So... How much space did you? How much did Jeff? How much space did you have between the first attack? You have forty or so. We don't know exact amount. Forty, and then you if you repel them. Then there's a space of time. How much time is there uh, before the next? Um, probably maybe forty-five minutes, maybe an hour, and then they tried to counter assault with a hundred guys. Pushed up. What's that? With a hundred men. Well, that that time we didn't know how many they they were able to repel that, and then. The third time they were going to start a third assault, and that's when we left before the, the the rest of the guys left. With everybody, got everybody out of the consulate except for the ambassador. We they had found Sean Smith's body, still couldn't find the ambassador, but they had left then because it was undefensible. I mean, six, eight, ten guys against a hundred uh, in a compound that size was going to be um, very difficult. So, Sean Smith, so everybody we, left and got back to the annex. Sean Smith, the information officer who stayed with the with the um, with the ambassador. So you yes. found him, but you didn't find the ambassador. Where were Correct. you? Where were you now at the second assault? Um, I was still over at the. I'm still over at the annex, making sure that if anything comes that way, I've got to stay there. I mean, you know, in my heart, I want to be over there, but somebody, you know, sometimes you don't always get to be in the fight. You got to sit back and cover everybody's six. How did you how did you feel when your buddies are over there taking on heavy fire against an am- amazing odds and you're hearing all this right you know exactly what's yeah. going on yeah what, what's going through your head that uh, two things is one is what can I do if it comes to here without them guy if, I mean worst case scenario is the whole team gets killed and then I'm defending our compound by myself for the most part I mean um, I'm going to take over and and defend that. And I've got to make plans on what to do. That, that was a, one was, thing I was going through my mind. But that way you were thinking that through your mind, like, my gosh, my five buddies are going to be uh, killed over there. And it's going to be, I'm less of the Alamo. It's just going to be me here holding down. Yeah, I've, I've got a plan for that possibility. You know, I've got a plan for every possibility that could occur. And that being the worst, how am I going to deal with that? Okay, do I got to get people? Are we going to get in vehicles and try to exfil out of there? If we can do that, that's fine. If not. What's next? Do we stay in place and defend? Do we have any help coming? We hadn't, we had requested it, but we hadn't been informed that anything was coming. So um, for me, that choice would have been, had they not made it back, and even with them making it back, our choice is, do we stay and fight in place if they come and attack us? Or do we, before they attack us, do we leave and try to find another way to get out of there? Um, So, So it's now 1230. 
They're in, they're in the consulate. You're back in the annex. Uh-huh. They're, the second attack has, is about to come, and you're still at the annex holding down the fort. Did anything happen? Yes. <clears throat> Those 100-plus men come. Your team does what now? Well, before they came, they were able to exfil. After the, the second wave came in, they uh, were able to repel that. And then the third wave was the wave that they left. They left before that happened, and they were able to make it back. And once they got back, everybody just filled in spots to make sure that we're ready for when what was there, because we knew then by then they were going to come back at us over at the annex. Okay, right. It was no secret where you were, right? You're, you're, no, Not you at that were, point. Right. Okay, perfect. So you're, they, they withdraw, they exfil back to the annex? Yep. Okay. Everybody got back to the annex. Good. And, and you didn't and, lose any men. At this point, you didn't lose anybody other than the ambassador and you have, uh, and Sean Smith's body you have with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think Tonto had a few scrapes and scratches because one of the walls that he was climbing over to get to the consulate fell down. Um, but no, we didn't have any major injuries. The, Scott Wickland from the State Department, he was he had some smoke inhalation, so he was pretty much combat ineffective. Um, and then the team leader from the State Department, he just went inside the uh, what what I call building uh, building B or building C. He went in building C to uh, to do whatever he was going to do there. And the rest of the State Department guys, they came in. I put them up on different points on the rooftops because we had four rooftops that we're kind of in a, in a diamond shape with a big square wall around us, all the way around us compound. You know, that, that's what the annex looked like. We had to cover 360 degrees. So I got guys up there. And then once the rest of our team showed up, Ronan asked me, he, he asked me where I have guys. I told him and they just went in and filled up, filled in other areas that, of weakness that they would fill and uh, be ready for when that attack, the next attack came to us if it did. So when they come back, just from a, a, a protocol point of view, who's the man in charge? You're the guy in charge because you're there and you tell everyone where to go or everyone just knows what to do? Well, a lot of it's, it's it, we pretty much know where to go. It's, I mean, it's from, you know, because that wasn't the, you know, in our downtime, what we would do would plan attacks on our base, on the console, I mean, on the annex. We would sit there and draw a picture of it up on the wall on a whiteboard and we would take turns figuring out how we would attack it. The rest of the part of the guys would talk about how to defend it. So we would role play, basically game these things out. So, you know, whether it be someone snuck over the wall in the middle of the night, or if they came up and blew up the, a hole in the wall with an, with a V bed, a, a vehicle born IED, or if it was just a, a large attack, like what it ended up being. Did you, did, was this one of your, in your playbook? Did you, did you think yeah. of the scenario? Yeah, because, okay. you know, we probably thought of just about everything, um, you know, and we probably thought of ways to attack our place that they never would have. But that's just kind of what we did in our downtime. I call it, um, it's it's an old Marine Corps thing, or at least a Marine Corps thing from when I was in my six P's is prior planning prevents piss poor performance. Uh-huh, nice. So nice. just making sure you're ready before you have to be ready. Perfect. So now you're all on, on top of buildings. Everyone, so you're on these four buildings designed designed in a diamond, shaped in a diamond, protecting yep. really, they could come from 360 anywhere around you, anywhere around yes. you. Yeah, how do you, how do you have all this ammunition? You you put all this up there on the roof prior? Yeah, we again, it comes back to those six Ps. Uh, you know, we'd probably, 
I think we had roughly around 60,000 rounds of ammo uh, for that layman, we brought for, in. For someone like me, a mere civilian, what is 60,000? 60, 60,000. 60, what is, trying to make me understand what 60,000 is. Um, think of a, uh, a pallet, a shipping pallet, full of ammo, about five feet tall. So a four by four shipping pallet about five feet tall is probably close. Is probably that may maybe half a shipping pallet. And, and would how be much, sixty thousand? How much firepower is that? And you know, is that that's a lot? That's a little? That's that's a boatload? That's an army? That's a war? What is that? Well, I mean, you know, the amount of ammo isn't as as important as the individuals and the firearms that you have. Most of us had what everyone in the world today calls assault rifles, which they were true assault rifles because they did fire fully automatic. Um, they weren't just a semi-auto. So fully, fully, fully automatic is how many rounds per, per minute? How many rounds could you get off? Um, if you pull the trigger and hold the trigger back, you can uh, shoot off a 30-round mag in, I mean, in probably less than a minute. Wow, so you have, but, a, you have a lot of firepower there with five guys yeah. doing that with 60,000 rounds. So I'm not saying, you know, you could hold these guys off forever, but you have, you could buy yourself a lot of time. Yeah. And, and just so everybody out there knows is never in my life, in my 30 years of working in the military law enforcement or as a private security contractor, have I ever had to felt the need to use fully automatic. I mean, it's, it's, it's a waste of ammo, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't use it. It's, it's better to do um, single fire or semi-auto fire and shoot controlled instead of just, I mean, the full auto kind of thing is not something that you'd ever use anyways. Right. That's just Hollywood making it seem like that's what you it is. Do. It is. Right. What it's really designed for is if you came down to the I mean, it's a it's to provide cover fire while you're moving to put a, a full volley of fire at somebody, not intentionally, not necessarily expecting to hit a lot, but to put their heads down so you could move to a different location. Right. So just cover, just basically shooting cover and moving on. Yep. Gotcha. OK, so now all your, your team's back. How many people now are in the uh, in the uh, annex? How many, how many people? Roughly around, um, probably 26 to 28 people total so every, with the State Department guys there. Everyone's um, back. Everyone's back. Everyone's, this seems to be the best spot. It's a happier day for you because now it's not you. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. at least you have a, at least you, I, I know I would feel a lot better. Okay. So now you have your men on all these buildings. You have the, you have these other 20 people. Where are they now? They're still inside building C. We had them all pretty much in building C. <clears throat> we had the six of us on the rooftops along with three of the state department guys that came up on the rooftops as well. Um, and then we started seeing movement on our Eastern flank and that was our, our, what would be our North and Northeastern flanks were what we call zombie land. And they started about, I, we saw roughly 15 to 20 guys in the first assault that were moving up on us. Um, and in this, now there's me and Tigger in an elevated fighting position in the corner and then Tonto and DB are up on a rooftop and we're the only four that can shoot at this, in this direction. Wait, you know what? Let me, let me stop you a second. Give me, give me the full names of these men. You, you keep using the, the uh, you folks use the military call signs that you guys have. Oz, Tig, yes. that thing. So let, let's give the men the, the respect they deserve. What, what's the, give me their full name so everyone knows who these heroes are. So you got Tyrone Woods, you got 
uh, John Tigan, who is Tig. You've got Jack, who is Jack. <laughs> his is a pseudo name. He's never put his real name out there. And same, and DB is uh, Dave Boone. And then uh, you have uh, Chris Peranto, which is Tonto. Gotcha. And, and then you have myself, Mark Geist is Oz. How'd you get Oz, by the way? The others all make sense. I don't know how they you got Oz. Um, well, when I first started contracting early on, uh, they called me Poulter for Poltergeist. Is what somebody designated my call <laughs> sign as. And I switched contracts, went to another one, and somebody there was named Potter. So Potter and Poulter over the radio is too similar. So they start, and I don't know. I don't know why they started calling me Wizard of Oz. And then I went to another place and it was a guy there named Wizard. So we got shortened down to Oz. Nice. Okay, good. Good story. So now you, you're back there. They're having an assault. And, and, and what's it? And now is, by the way, when they're coming back with a counter assault, this is a third time. And it's now what? What time is this now? How many hours into this? Well, now we're getting on about one o'clock in the morning. And this is actually the fourth attack because they're coming at the annex now. No one's right. there. We're done over at the consulate. So this is the so four, fourth attack, and it's been four uh -huh. hours of hell, really three and a half hours of hell. Yep. And thank God you didn't lose anyone up until this point. Now they're coming over. Is the is the weaponry better, more more destructive? Are they getting smarter at this point? Are they learning more? Not really. I mean, they're coming back at us thinking, and I think they thought the annex would be defended about like the consulate was. Um, you had about... Like I said, 15, 20 guys moving up. Um, we have infrared uh, lasers on our on our weapons. We had night vision uh, on our, you know, covering our eyes, night vision devices that we could look through. So we could identify them moving up. And so as they're moving up, we're kind of waiting for them to get as close as possible. There's, we had some floodlights that we uh, put up and we could would would in would light up everything out to about 30 yards from our our walls so we're waiting until they get pretty close and letting them think that they're going to get up on us and they were getting pretty close when one of them did had been able to sneak fairly close up against the wall and had thrown an ied over the wall and uh it actually landed back by me and tig and blew up um and that's really what kind of started the whole firefight the that that attack and we opened up on them, and they had opened up on us when that thing went off. So who, you're on the roof now with whom? I'm on – well, I came off the rooftop, and I'm in the northeast corner of the build of the compound of the annex, and we had built elevated fighting positions. So I'm right up against the outer wall. I can shoot – I mean, from about waist up is what would be exposed, or not waist up, but chest up. Um and I could shoot over the wall and defend it from that spot. And Tiggett joined me up there. Tonto and DB were up on building B. So we pretty much had them in a crossfire. I mean, they're coming up from the east, and we had picked out where everybody was at. So when they opened up, uh, I mean, it, it probably, the first firefight, I mean, we took them out pretty quick. It was like playing, uh, playing whack-a-mole at the fair. Somebody sticks their head up, you put a couple rounds into them. Um, they fall down, you take the next guy out, and that lasted maybe five to seven minutes before we took out most of their guys, or at least killed or injured most of them, and they decided to pull back. I just don't understand after the first, if, if you're in the second wave or the second group, after you see what happens to the first line of defense, the first attackers, rather, you'd say, would you give up? Like, 
you got to be stupid to keep coming. I just don't get it. I really, it's, you know, well, it's all right. Anyway, thank God our enemies are stupid. So, yeah. uh, they, they, so now it's one o'clock or one thirty in the morning or so. Yeah. W- what are you up to? Well, we're feeling pretty good. Cause it, uh, you know, um, we hadn't lost anybody, hadn't had any major injuries. I took some, uh, glass in the face, um, just small cuts, nothing major. And, uh, at this time also, we got information that Glenn Doherty, um, Bub is his call sign, Glenn's team from Tripoli, which is our sister team, had been able to acquire a civilian aircraft and fly down, and they had landed at the Benghazi International Airport. All right, so help's on the way. Well, yeah. Now, the thing with that is none of their guys had been to Benghazi before, and when they landed at the airport, that airport's controlled by one of the militias. So it's a friendly militia for the most part, but they're going to try to get everything they can. You know, I mean, they know what's going on. They know you got a bunch of Americans landing here. They know Americans have money. How are they going to extract that money out of them? They're going to delay them as much as possible. So they were trying to negotiate. Glenn's team had to negotiate with them to get vehicles. How long to get them to how, how long does that take? To our location. How long does that take before they um, get to Glenn's team didn't get to our location until about five o'clock in the morning. Five a.m. So now yeah. it's so what happened between one and five a.m. What's what's going on now? Um, well, roughly around two two thirty, they decided to come back with us as a counter assault. This time they came back with probably double. So thirty to forty guys. This next time. Wait, wait. Excuse me, Mark. Um, this is this is the fourth. The, first, yep. the fourth surge. Okay, fourth. So you fifth. guys, uh, you just the fifth uh, one. This is the fifth one. Yeah. So you got three at the three at the consulate, and now already two at the annex. Yep. The, the, the it's the second one at the annex. Um, a guy drove up in towards our back gate, which was on our eastern perimeter, in a car. We have you know chicanes, or we have uh, they call them Jersey barriers. They're the cement highway dividers you know, that we see here, we have them set out so nobody could get close with a vehicle. They come skidding up and the guy's throwing a, looks like I catch him out of the corner of my eye and he's got his arm back like he's throwing something. And uh, he's basically throwing an IED at our back gate. Cause if he could blow that open, then it gives him a shot at coming in. Um, I put three rounds into him. He felt like a sack of potatoes. What he was throwing landed about uh, 10 feet short of the gate, blew up. And that started the next attack. And so, you know, and again, it was, I mean, because we had them in a crossfire, we could see them coming up with our night vision. Um, it took this one, this firefight probably lasted about 15, 20 minutes. And they decided to pull back again. Uh, and now we're really feeling good because we don't have any, uh, still don't have any major injuries. I mean, Tig took a ricochet in his side. Um, he was kind of complaining a little bit about that. I told him it's not bleeding, so he should man up a little bit. Um, really, and that's that's kind of us joking around more, more than that, more than anything. That's kind of stress relief stuff for us. Um, but uh, <clears throat> so we're really feeling good. We get a phone call actually from a cell phone that the ambassador had, and it was a local national saying that the ambassador was at the hospital. Oh, good. So you're thinking, wow, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, but we're also thinking, I mean, my first thought, at least for me, was they're just trying to get us outside of our compound 
because if we're outside of our compound, we're not going to be able to defend ourselves as easy. Right. So we ended up uh, getting a source is what I'll call it, or an informant basically paid a guy to go to the hospital and check out to see if the ambassador was really there. Um, so this local Libyan that we had hired, he went there, took some pictures of the ambassador, show, which proved to us that he was there, but he was deceased. He wasn't alive. And, and so, so now it's, it's around what, two o'clock in the morning or so. Yep. Two o'clock getting it towards the end of two o'clock. And I had moved from my position to go around and check with the other guys, see if anybody needed relieved, if they needed water, if they needed ammo. Um, I went up and talked with uh, Tyrone a little bit. He went down because he was our medic as well. He went down and checked on some guys that um, like Tonto who had scraped up his arm and stuff and the state department guys making sure they're okay. And he, then he came back up on the rooftop. And uh, at this point we're waiting for Glenn's team uh, to get there. And at that point, the plan was going to be all the non-essential personnel, which was all the CIA personnel, the full-time employees. We were going to get them to go with Glenn and their team, escort them back out to the uh, airport, get them on that plane because we couldn't, the plane wouldn't fit everybody. Get them out, fly them back to Tripoli. And uh, the six of us on our team, were going to kind of hold down the Alamo, as I would say. And Okay. So now what? Well, Glenn's team shows up about five o'clock in the morning, you know, and it's that <clears throat> it's that time of the morning when um, I guess the best way to kind of describe it is in, you know, it's right before the sun's coming up. We call it uh, b- beginning morning nautical twilight. It's about that 30, 45 minutes. The sun hasn't peaked over the horizon yet, but the light started there. You see the blues instead of the dark blacks. Mm-hmm. You can start seeing silhouettes and, uh, you know, and, I had turned to Ty and said, you know, if they're going to attack, it's going to be anytime soon. Because traditionally, if anybody who's read anything about military history, that's the time to attack. Everybody's been up all night. You're tired. Your eyes can't see as well during that time with the changing of the lights. Um, Well, Glenn's team had pulled in and everybody had came in. All the security guys come in, went inside building C that I, me and Ty and Dave State Department guy was over in one corner, me and Ty were in the opposite corner facing north. But Glenn comes up on the rooftop. And Glenn, I never knew Glenn before that night uh, other than by reputation. And Glenn was the guy that he had the most upbeat attitude that there was, always had a smile on his face, Um, just a really great personality. But he was also a gunfighter. He was uh, a trained sniper from when he was in the Navy SEALs. And he'd come up and Ty had introduced me to him. And I said, well, you know, I just kind of told him, I'm glad we're getting, we got another gunfighter in here. Hopefully we don't need you, but I'm glad we got you. And they kind of moved to my left and started talking and call for prayer went off. And then once that finished, um, an RPG hit the back wall right in front of me and Ty and, uh, and Glenn we hit our outer wall, which was probably about, about 20 feet, 30 feet out in front of us from where we were on the on, on top of the wall at also belt fed machine gun opened up AK 47s opened up and simultaneously another explosion, which was later identified as a mortar came in and hit our outer wall on top, right in front of where Dave was, which was Dave was about 35 feet, 40 feet, maybe to my right on the other corner. And Dave yelled out that he was hit. 
Ty had a belt-fed machine gun. He opened up. I opened up with my M4. And Glenn was kind of moving behind us to get separation because you don't all want to be in the same spot shooting because if they hit one of you, they're going to hit the rest of you. Oh, wait, one second, one second, Mark. You had four guys more or less together. So let me understand. It was you, right? Uh-huh. It, was, it, was, it was Tyrone? Yep. It was DB? Nope, not DB. It was Glenn, Bub. Oh, Glenn, Bub. I'm sorry, Bub. Glenn. And who was the fourth guy? was Dave. He was the State Department the security State Department guy. guy. Got it. Yeah, and he was in the opposite corner of the building. So the building was about 40 feet by 30 feet uh, rectangle. Uh, so all you guys were in a corner. Yep, those two, we were at opposite corners. There was a ladder. We had built these ladders early on when we first got there, inch and a half square tubing that we'd welded together and bolted up to the side of the building so you could climb up and down. Dave's sitting over in that corner. I'm about... 30 feet from him, Ty and Glenn are right in the corner on my left-hand side. Glenn then started moving behind us, and he was moving towards this way so he could get where we could get crossfires. He was So we could have separation, and we could get them in a crossfire. And when that first mortar hit, Dave got injured from it. He started screaming out that he was injured, and he's sitting over there on the box there's a box because the walls, if you see, in the movie, it was very similar. You see the about a three-foot wall around the top of the building. We had a box there that you had to step on to get up onto the ladder to climb down. So Dave's sitting over there because I glanced over, and I could see the silhouette of him holding his head. And he's yelling out that he's hit. You know, and every instinct in your body wants you to go over there and help him. But you can't because if I leave my spot, then there's a weakness in our perimeter. So I got to stay in the fight. And we call that, you got to have that self-aid first. It's, you got to take care of yourself. It's self-aid, buddy aid, first aid. So take care of yourself. Then once the, the position's secured, you can, your buddy can take care of you. And then we can get you to first aid. So after that first one hit, I turned back and I finished shooting, uh, went through one magazine. I knelt down, was uh, changing magazines changed magazines and I'm about halfway into standing back up again. And then the next mortar hits the top of the rooftop and hit about 15, 17 feet to my right, right wait, in between. Wait, hang on a second. How big is this rooftop again? 40 by what? Um, 40 feet by 30. 40, and this thing hits on top. So they, they got a lot better. They know where you're at. Exactly. Well, they knew where we were at from the get go. What happened is the first one hit and like anything, I mean, when you shoot it off a mortar's, you know, it's, you drop it down a tube and then it explodes at the bottom and shoots it out. When that explosion hits, it settles that base plate is what we call it. There's a big plate that it sits on, settles that into the ground, which it, if it's a fresh uh, mortar site, it sets it back about two inches. So it's going to drop that round back automatically. And it hit, like I said, right where the rooftop, the flat part and the wall of, on top of the roof, it hit right there and blew up and kind of knocked me back a little bit. And I finished standing up because I had to start shooting again. And that's when I noticed Ty was in a fetal position at my feet and he's taken out of the fight. Um, I know that Dave's out of the fight and I know Glenn hasn't got into it because he's still moving because the time in between the first and all, there was four mortars that hit total the wall and then three on the rooftop took them about a, a minute and 20 seconds for all of them to hit. Well, after that first one hit, I raised my gun up to start shooting. And that's when I realized that I'm injured. 
because I bring my left arm up and about four inches, three, four inches above the wrist, it's hanging off at about a 90 degree angle. So that was pretty, and, pretty accurate in the movie. Your, your, your hand, your arm from really from your fingers all the way, what to you, to your forearm or so mid forearm. Yeah. About, about right here. Yeah, I mean, it was literally hanging just, down, man. It was, it you can kind of see where that scar man. is, where it blew it up. And it was hanging down and you were like dangling it. I read in the yeah, book it was also. Hanging. I was, I'm actually swinging it, trying to make it grab my gun. I'm swinging it to shoot because I know I've got to keep shooting. Otherwise they're going to come over the wall. And that's when the next mortar hit and it hit almost the same spot, but just a further back into the center of the building. And that one I had glanced over and saw Glenn go face down. It had landed in front of him. And then the third one hit almost immediately after that. Now I took shrapnel from all of them. And the third one though, was the first one where I really felt any pain and it felt like I got stung by a thousand bees. And it was at that time I realized that, you know what? you better get to some cover because if another one hits, you're going to get killed as well. You, you tell me when a mortar goes off, what is the, what is the power of that? That how much energy uh, does that thing expand on it and just burst? Well, it's, so it's 81 millimeter mortars is what these were, which are right around three inches. Okay. And they have a kill radius of 132 feet roughly. So this thing falls in the middle of, let's say, somewhere, and I just drew a circle around a radius, you said? Yes. Okay, so 132 radius, which is pretty big area, a big area. Yeah. Kill rate. Now, kill rate means dead. That's it. Yep, from 90, you have about a 97, 98% chance of dying if you're within 132 feet of this, 130 get, feet of them. And you have three of these hit your on top of the roof. Yes, sir. All right, so... Not all right. I just can't get my head around this. So, uh, Roan is in a fetal position from the blast. Yep. Your arm is dangling off. Yep. Uh, who was in the corner? Uh, uh, um, Dave. Dave, Dave is, had gotten shrapnel to his forehead. And he's out of commission. He's out of commission, and Glenn is out of commission because the one mortar landed in front of him and took him out as well. So when you say took him out, you don't know if they're dead at this point, or you have no idea? Um... The, he fell the way he fell straight to his face. You know, you know I, I pretty much assumed that they were dead, but in the back of my mind, I'm still hoping. And you can't go to them now. You can't go to them because you got to still defend. Right. And with with one so, arm, with your with your left arm, literally uh, like a hinge off, it's not working. Yep. <laughs> yeah. A bit of skin across the top, and then a bit of skin and a little bit of muscle on the bottom was all that was holding it on. How, how are you not bleeding out at this point? Are you put on a tourniquet? Um, it's bleeding pretty bad. I just don't realize it. I mean, uh, after that third more, after the fourth mortar hit, the the last one hit on the rooftop. I had kind of dove down to some cover, and everything just went quiet. So thank you know thank the Lord that uh, that they quit shooting mortars because if they kept shooting them, they would have killed everybody, not just all of us on top. They would have killed everybody inside too. Cause it would eventually uh, blown open the top of that rooftop What's, and buried everybody. So they stop it. Now after the third mortar hits the top of the building, four mortars, they shoot yep. third one hits. Boom. You're everyone is severely injured up there or either dead. You don't have no idea at this point. What is right. your next, what is your next course of action? Well, I sit up and start to get my tourniquet out because I, I, I know I got to take care of myself. And I pull my tourniquet out. And uh, I also see Ty. He's about four or five feet away from me. 
And what instinct should have said to stay and take care of myself? I quit and I started because I wanted to see if he was alive to see if I could help him. So I crawled over and I could, I started looking for a pulse and I couldn't find a pulse. So I sat back up and then I started to try to get my tourniquet on my arm. And when that happened, I saw a shadow come up over the rooftop over by the ladder. And that was Tig. I didn't know it at the time, but Tig comes up over the rooftop and Tig ran into Dave right there. Dave had shrapnel in his forehead. His left arm was about blown off like mine and his left leg was about severed off as well. Tig immediately got two two tourniquets put on him, saving his life. And then Tig came over to where I'm at and uh, helped me get my tourniquet on. But as he was coming over, because I would hold my arm up and I'd reach down to grab the tourniquet to try to get it over top of it before it fell down. And it kept falling down. And Tig walks over and he looks at me and says, hey, Oz, you might want to quit playing with that thing. It'll look, uh, you're not going to make it any better. And he reaches down while I hold it on and he gets the tourniquet on. And uh, he asks me if I can get over to the ladder by myself. And, you know, and and again, in the back of my mind, I know that I'm hoping Ty and Glenn are still alive. So I get up and walk over to the ladder um, so Tig can take care of them. I get over to the ladder and then another guy, one of our guys comes up to the top, uh, one of the Glenn's team. I didn't know who he was. And he says, hey, can you get down the ladder on your own? And I'm like, yeah. I can, not realizing, not realizing really what I'm saying I can do, but I just, my thing was they need to take care of the guys up there. And so he helped me sit on the edge of the rooftop and my legs are dangling over and the ladder's right here to my right. And uh, that's when I realized, you know, how am I going to get onto there? So I reached down and hooked my good arm around the top rung of the ladder and I just slide off knowing that my body will turn and land on the ladder. And it turned and my feet didn't land on the ladder. I kind of fell down a little bit, but was able to keep myself from falling all the way to the ground and pulled myself back up and climbed on down, walked around to the front. And when I'm walking around, another guy comes out and he leads me inside and they lay me down. And that's when uh, in the movie, they show me sitting on the edge of the gurney with the female case officer taking care of me. In reality, I'm laying on the floor and uh, as they, uh, um, they're just looking at me for the, there's four flashlights in my face. And I'm like, Hey, somebody needs to cut off my clothes. I'm bleeding from more than just my arm. And so the female case officer, she runs back to where we've got our medical supplies and I can just hear stuff flying everywhere. She's throwing stuff and she yells out, Oz, where's the medical shears? And I'm like, they're in the first set of shelves, third from the top. And it goes back to my six P's. I mean, every place I go, if there's a med room, I take a water bottle, cut it off, and I'll tape it to a post or something near where you're going to work on somebody. And the three things I put in there is medical shears, morphine, and tourniquets. Because mm. those are the three things that I know I'm going to probably be able to save somebody's life with. So she grabs the medical shears, comes back over, and uh, they end up cutting all my clothes off. We find about 20, 25 holes in me. Um, most of them weren't bleeding too bad. And I told him, you know, if it's squirting blood, stop it. If it's just oozing, don't worry about it right now. And uh, so I got hit in the neck. Um, I had shrapnel about a millimeter from my carotid artery. I got hit four or five times with shrapnel in the chest. Uh, nothing bleeding too bad there. Hit in the stomach, up and down both legs, um, in my face. Another piece of shrapnel was about a millimeter, two millimeters from my femoral artery. 
we got all the ones that there was a couple that were kind of squirting a little bit. We got them shut down. And uh, by that time they brought Dave down. And when Dave came down, he was worse off than I was. I mean, he had lost a lot of blood in and out of consciousness. And so they started working on him as well. And eventually we got another militia, a friendly militia, which actually the irony is the militia that came helped escort us all to the airport was a Gaddafi loyalist militia. And they helped get us to the airport. Um, we got the wounded, myself and uh, the other guys that were wounded and all the non-essential personnel on that aircraft. Um, I, was, I rode in the back of a Hilux pickup truck on a, on a stretcher and uh, they come over to grab the stretcher and I knew I could walk. So I kind of, as in the movie, I mean, they depicted it well as I just pushed myself off and said, you know, I walked into Benghazi, I'm going to walk out. And I stood up and started walking to the plane. And uh, um, it, there was a, f a female flight attendant, an Arab lady up on the, at the top of the, air, the aircraft. And she just disappeared into the back of the aircraft. Cause at that point I forgot that I was pretty much naked and uh, so I figured it was me being naked is what she what scared the heck out of her. And I climbed up into the airplane and she come back with a handload of towels and uh, she started laying them down in front of me. I thought it was first. I thought she wanted me to cover up and, but she didn't, she was worried about me bleeding on her boss's airplane. So we got Dave loaded up and everybody else. And finally got to, uh, we got to Tripoli at about 10, I think 1030 is when I got there. And they took me into a Libyan hospital, me and Dave got into a Libyan hospital with Libyan doctors that are probably the ones that saved my life. They got my arm put back together, kind of stitched up everything that was bleeding, stopped all the other bleeds as well as the major ones. And uh, same thing with Dave. And while that's going on, the rest of the team is stuck at the airport till a, uh, about 10, again, around 10, 1030, a C-130 lands. And they're thinking that's the first aircraft from the U.S. coming to help out. Well, it comes down and takes a right-hand turn, and instead of an American flag on the tail fin, it's a Libyan flag. So it was a Libyan aircraft. And uh, the one thing we do right with the agency is we make sure we have a lot of cash on hand because that's how you pay informants and things like that. Well, these guys, we had some money on it. They went over and talked to the pilot and co-pilot and convinced them that it was probably in their financial interest to uh, um, to fly them out, out to Tripoli. And so the guys cranked up the airplane we were able, in that downtime, they were able to recover the ambassador's body. Um, they sent one of the militia guys uh, to the hospital, recovered his body, got him back. And so everybody that was in Benghazi, that was an American, come out with us. Didn't leave anybody behind. And, and we didn't do it with the, with the help of Washington, D.C. We did it for each other. And that's just the way that we're all, that, that's the way we think. I mean, Americans are in harm, harm's way. We're going to help them. And as you said early on, it doesn't matter what your race is, what your creed is, what your color is, what your religion is, or whatever sexual orientation you have. Don't care about that. It's you're an American. We're going to help take care of you. That's why we, that's why we raise our hand to uphold that constitution because it's that constitution that protects us all. And that's really what's important to, to this country is we, as, as much as people want to, adjust it it's worked for 245 years you better leave it alone because that's what is going to keep us free and, and keep people wanting to join our military and wanting to come to america and get more people and want like, to be free more people like you and your team to do what you guys do yep
That's it. Wow. Wow. Uh, it, it, Stranger Than Fiction is just absolutely amazing, amazing story. Five guys, six guys, kept out 500, 500 terrorists from attacking for no reason, unprovoked. That's terrorism. That's terrorism for well, you. Well, their That's reason true. was because we fly an American flag. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Reason because we're see, Americans. they don't care what color or religion or race or sexual orientation you are either. Yep. yep you're you're all Americans, so they want to just kill you. Yeah, that, that's what I think we forgot. A lot of people have forgotten that, you know, we have all these divisions amongst ourselves, but go out of the confines of the United States, they really don't care. When those planes went into the World Trade Center, I remember that morning, it was horrific. It was, about, I remember watching the fire from my house, the smoke. They don't care who was in that building. You know, it, it, no, any nationalities were, it just didn't matter. The, wow, wow. So when the, you, you found out uh, uh, Roan, uh, Roan mm-hmm. died, and that when he was serving in the fetal position, that blast yep. took him out, you know. Yeah, and uh, and also um, uh, Bub, right? Two of, yep. two of the two of the Navy SEAL guys on your team, and uh, so we lost four men that day, right? Yes, we did. Wow, and you came back and you started. I don't know the time sequence, but not important. Uh, you started. You and your wife started an organization called uh, ShadowWarriorsProject.org. Yes, sir. Tell me what why you started this organization and what you guys do? Well, it's, you know, I knew I wanted to still, I knew I wasn't going to be able to continue doing the job that I did and I still wanted to help serve. So best way I could do it is um, help the guys by making sure that they're taken care of if they get injured like I was. And the thought of it first started when I was uh, still in the hospital in Walter Reed in uh, Washington, D.C. when I was out there. And then it took us about probably six months to a year before we actually got it all off the ground with everything. And uh, what we do is as private security contractors, um, and this is something that people don't understand is since 2001, we've had over 5,000 private security contractors or private contractors, not all security, but private contractors that work for the U S government get killed in 80 different countries for being Americans and serving this country because they put themselves in harm's way. Um, over 30,000 injured. And those are the numbers that that's why we use contractors and a lot of things doing certain jobs at the military. So we don't have to have as many military personnel. The contractors can do it. And they, a lot of times they can do it cheaper. So you don't have to have the growth in the military, you know, and the downsizing and all that. Um, but really as contractors, especially the private security contractors are the ones that are in the most dangerous positions. Um, We have a workman's comp policy and that's it. So as you said early on, you know, I got paid pretty well. I got paid about $780 a day. And most days I never had to really earn that because I didn't get shot at, but the days I got shot at, it wasn't enough. So it kind of compensates it. Um, But once I left Libya on the 12th of September, 2012, my pay stopped. I'm in the hospital for six to eight weeks. I don't get paid. I get done. I got to file the paperwork for a workman's comp claim. You know how efficient that is. I mean, it's government. They're really spot on quick, (laughs) tongue in cheek there. I didn't get my first workman's comp check till after the first of the year. How how are you you paying the mortgage? How are you paying your kids? You know, 
you know, for us, it was, it was the grace of, it was one, the grace of God and the grace of people that I worked with um, that donated money to us. That if I went, when I went back to Washington, DC, um, I'd stopped by the, uh, by Langley and a group of them that had worked around us had collected money and they handed me an envelope that had several thousand dollars in it that they had took up as a donation because they knew that we were struggling for just being able to pay the rent. And and really that's why we wanted to start shadow warriors is so no one had to suffer or had to worry about that. Cause when you're healing or you're mourning the death, you know, the you're, when you're healing as a, a, a warrior or you're mourning the death of a warrior, the last thing a family should have to worry about is making their bills. I just so, find the, I find the indignity of it all. You you held off 500 men from attacking. You saved American lives. You paid two of your buddies paid the ultimate price. You were badly injured, and now you're on your own. Yep. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. I mean, you know, now I knew that going into it. I understood that. Yeah, but, but I, I got you. I got you. It's all great. It still doesn't make any sense. Since you knew it, because it doesn't make any sense that the U.S. government hires private contractors to protect Americans so you could take the burden off the military, pay you a nice amount of money. Don't get me wrong. Good money. You know what you were going into. However, however, when risking your life and getting into an injury and getting injured and, and I don't know how many operations you've had. How many operations on your arm already? Uh, about fif- 14 or 15. 14 or 15. You, you still have to pay for your kids' ballet lessons and put food on the table and pay your cable bill. And here you are. I don't want to say a handout, but there's something when someone gives you an envelope instead of getting a check. You know, here we're, we're collecting money. That couldn't, that may, I know you feel great about it, but it can't feel all that great. That, that, uh, that's sad. That's sad. And I had no, look, most people don't know anything about this. I didn't know about this, this other world. No, they don't, you know, and, and, uh, and it's unfortunate, you know, because we still have people serving overseas. Now we don't have as many contractors overseas, but in Afghanistan right now, for every one military, active duty military person we have overseas, there's 2.5 contractors also there to support that soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. But we're not talking contractors like mercenaries. I want to make that distinction. We're talking about, let's just call it security guards for our people, for our CIA and State Department. Yep. But you guys aren't soldiers of fortune that's going to fight for Mozambique tomorrow. You guys are there to no. protect Americans under a different line item on the P&L statement of someone in government. Yep. That's exactly it. Wow. And so Shadow, I mean, War- Shadow Warriors Org is a, is a Shadow, Shadow Warriors Project.org is an organization that you and your wife started grassroots. So you have a great website and you got that pretty cheap and you got it donated by great people or put together great people. And yep. you want to raise awareness and raise money to help these warriors for the first, what, 90 days or so when they come back home? Yeah, the initial is try to help them with their bills so they don't have to worry about things. I mean, make sure their rent's paid or their mortgage is paid. Make sure the, the lights are turned on and make sure they have heat or air conditioning wherever they live. Simple and make thing. sure that they don't have to worry about that. And, you know, and, and if you give them that first three months, if we can help them through that, it increases their probability of not having to lose their home 
it increases their well-being mentally and physically. This is just uh, amazing. So if anyone wants to contribute, go to uh, shadowwarriorsproject.org. And as you told me, any amount of money, whatever it is, a dollar, ten dollars, fifteen dollars, or something, and especially, it, you know, it doesn't take much. You know, it doesn't take much. You're looking for three months, get these people's lives in order, and just stop the slide. Because once you start to go into that slide of being late on this and foreclosures, it just, and especially if you're injured and coming back, it just be. I just can't imagine how horrendous this is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and most of the guys that are working in this job, I mean, like myself, I've been working as a private security contractor for nine years. Um, I was gone. I added it up. I was overseas for 21 deployments. I was gone for seven years out of nine and a half years of working. Um, we got guys that are coming back with PTS. I don't call it PTSD because it's not a disorder. It's just our brain's another muscle. It's just an injury. It's just different type of injury. And you got guys that are repeatedly doing this and they need help. And that's why one of our other programs, as you see on there, is our dog program, getting guys that need service dogs, canines, um, making sure that they're taken care of and that they can still do what they need to do and have that help to get through what they've, for all the years that they've served, you know, and, most of them served several years in the military and then they get out and they still have that desire to serve this country. And this is, gives them another afford affords them that. Amazing. Unfortunately, we just don't take care of them the same. You know, I really hope that this organization goes out of business soon because I don't think it's the responsibility of a private guy like you and your wife bootstrapping this when it seems to me. And once again, I might be missing a big part of the picture here where this should really be some government agency or some part of the, uh, a defense department that should be taking care. It's a small line item, but uh, it, it sounds it, it sounds cruel in effect. It is. I mean, unfortunately, it is. Wow, Mark Osgeich, you are a hero. I know you don't want to say that, but you and your team just amazing, and especially and more importantly, what you're doing now. So you saved 500 people. 500. I'm sorry, you held off 500 terrorists to save 20 some people i just wish that you and my prayer is that you save many many more fold in in your organization which i'm sure you're going to do and uh once again it's uh, shadowwarriorsproject.org i'll leave a link uh on the in the podcast description where the organization is just basically you and your wife bootstrapping this yourselves and becoming a social yep. uh, a social agency trying to take care of uh, others who just fall through the cracks that's it so the name of this book is 13 Hours, guys. Uh, amazing, amazing book. See the movie. And Mark, I'm like I said at the start, man, I'm just uh, I'm just happy that you're on our side and um, and uh, just thankful that we live in a country that produced people like you and your team. Just absolutely amazing. Well, Charles, thank you so much. And thanks for all your support for Shadow Warriors getting the word word out. Um, because it's 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 the everyday American that can you know, it's, it's the grassroots. Those Ameri those of you out there, those people out there that can, can do $10 a month or $20 a month or whatever it takes. I mean, it could be $5 a month. You're going to be helping somebody get through life in their toughest of times when they've injured for serving this country, for making sure that we're free back here in, a, in, in this country. Beautiful. Mark, God bless you and your wife. And thank you for all you've done. Thank you for your service. And I wish you the best and only success and happiness for the next 120 years. Thanks so much, Mark.
Hey, thank you, Charles. God bless you. God bless you as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.